Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, July 14th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We'll talk with Verve Therapeutic CEO Sig Kathy Rayson about preventing heart disease with genome editing. Our STAT colleague Isabella Cueto will also join us to chat about her reporting on TikTokers raising awareness about gut health. And as always, we'll kick it off with a snappy recap of this week's news in biopharma. That's coming up after a word about an award-winning podcast from STAT. For far too long, racism has created a crisis in American healthcare. The whole system has failed my niece, and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's ignored. No one is listening. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter and host of Color Code, a new podcast from STAT. I mean, I have a mistrust in the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Culico takes a hard look at the forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. You can find Color Code on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Let's raise the alarm. So as we often do, we start with COVID-related matters. Uh, this week, uh, an authorization of a new COVID vaccine from Novavax. Yes, our long national nightmare is over. Novavax's <laughs> vaccine uh, received emergency use authorization. Finally. <laughs> after nearly two years of delays and, and missed deadlines and, and issues with production and regulatory, I guess we can you know fast forward through all of that. So the Novavax vaccine is authorized. It's a two-dose vaccine. Um, as a primary series, as they call it, which is to say for people who have not already gotten vaccinated with the Moderna, Pfizer, or Johnson & Johnson vaccines that have been available for quite some time now, which is interesting in that roughly two-thirds of the U.S. falls into that group, which is to say there's only about one-third of people uh, in this country who would be eligible for the Novavax vaccine. And many of them, if, if they've gone this long without getting vaccinated, presumably have some skepticism about uh, or about COVID nineteen vaccines that exist, so there is a theory a, that a majority of those people. I think a majority of those people are major league baseball players apparently <laughs> right. that just don't want to get vaccinated. So, well, there's a theory. So, Novavax's vaccine, unlike messenger RNA or, or viral vectors, is based on an, an older and maybe better understood technology that's similar to what's used for a lot of really common influenza vaccines. So there has been this theory for now going on quite a while that some sliver of the unvaccinated population in this country and perhaps the world is holding out for something like what Novavax will be able to offer. So we will finally get to test that hypothesis uh, pretty soon. The authorization was this week. The CDC is expected to endorse it similarly, and thus it should be available in this country in the next 
week or so. As to whether there's pent-up demand, I mean, again, it's a hypothesis to test, but the United States government, which has the right to some 100 million doses of Novavax's vaccine by virtue of basically funding its development, placed an order for 3.2 million doses this week, which is enough for about 1.6 million people. That might reflect you know, Novavax's production capacity. There's probably a lot of pushes and pulls in that, but it does suggest that at least the White House and the powers that be in the United States are not expecting a groundswell of demand for this thing once it's available. So the next thing I wanted to discuss uh, this week in uh, in Biotech News was uh, the uh, transition at the top of Agios Pharmaceuticals. Uh, I wrote a story earlier this week, uh, Jackie Faust, who's been the CEO of Agios for about like three and a half years. She announced that she's stepping down this week. Uh, she's going to be replaced uh, by Brian Goff. Uh, he was a former uh, operations uh, kind of commercial executive officer at Alexion Pharmaceuticals uh, before they were acquired by AstraZeneca. You know, it's kind of a, you know, anytime a CEO leaves uh, is kind of a significant transition. And and it's also a, a point to kind of reflect on, uh, on the performance of said uh, CEO. And I think, uh, you know, I, uh, Jackie Faust is, you know, is pretty well known within the industry. Uh, as we all probably remember, she was uh, a top executive at Celgene um, before she took over at Agios. And so, you know, it's a company that has been, uh, I think it's, you know, it's fair to say it's kind of had its ups and downs, uh, you know, kind of got off to a roaring start and quickly uh, secured approval for a couple of cancer drugs, but then actually sold those drugs off and, and pivoted to development of uh, genetic diseases. And I think that's where, you know, even though they do have one drug approved for a, a, a genetic disease where there's been a little bit more uncertainty about kind of what their future is. Yeah, it's interesting to, <laughs> it's it's tempting to read into this as a kind of referendum on that pivot, which was about two yeah. years ago that Agios did this very interesting deal where they made nearly $2 billion by selling off that you know, early success in oncology and pivoting to rare disease. And, and as you mentioned, you know, there's been maybe some disappointments, but but very much so a lot of unanswered questions about their future uh, post pivot. And so it's interesting that, that, you know, they would change course on a CEO now with so many of those cards unturned. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned that that deal, the sale of those cancer drugs for, for $1.8 billion. You know, that I mean, it was pretty amazing if you think about the timing of that deal. That was in December of 2020 that uh, Adios did that. And that was a deal that, you know, again, was engineered by Jackie Faust. And, you know, the timing, if you think about the timing of that deal, it was just superb, right? I mean, that was right before, like, basically all hell broke loose in biotech. And, you know, we have obviously been experiencing this biotech winter, uh, you know, where stock prices and valuations on drugs have just really been decimated. Uh, you know, if they if they went out to sell those cancer drugs today, they would be probably get the fraction of the value that they that they got back in December 2020. So, I mean, that was an example of just a really well-timed deal that brought in a ton of money to IGOs and really kind of um, took the pressure off the company from having to go out and raise money, which we're seeing a lot of companies having to do, you know, under some kind of distressed circumstances. So speaking of the long winter for biotech, it would probably be premature to say that the season had changed uh, but it's getting warmer. I'm stretching this metaphor way too far. What I'm setting you up for is <laughs> it's, that it's a it's a spring. It's yeah, after sure, the winter yeah. comes the spring. Yeah, right. Um, so so yeah. What what is that? Is it really spring? What are, are the green shoots indicative of a change in season, or is it just a dead cat bounce? Well, it, I guess it's funny because uh, you know it's all relative, right? So we, we have seen a sort of mini 
bounce in in biotech stock prices over the last month or so. So right now, uh, the XBI, which is the the stock index, biotech stock index that we follow most closely, is only, and I use that sort of air quotes, down 25% for the year. But about a month ago, it was down, you know, 45%. So, you know, yeah, that's a pretty significant bounce. Biotech looks better and better relative to its benchmarks, the S&P 500 um, or whatever else you might compare it to, which is one of those, I mean, I guess it's a silver lining for biotech in particular, which is to say that as the rest of the economy ticks downward, it starts to look less bad, biotech and pharma and healthcare by and large. And there was a story in Reuters, I think, uh, on Wednesday, talking to fund managers who were basically looking to park money in healthcare stocks because they don't expect them to get as damaged as everything else is. And I remember this from you know the financial crisis, that this notion that healthcare was a recession-proof industry by virtue of you know, when everything is bad, it's one of the last things that you would ration or one of the last things that you would, you know, cut off outright. You know, people get sick and they need to be cared for. So if, in fact, we are at the doorstep of another recession, we'll get another test of that theory. Just imagine if all those Tesla bros started buying biotech. <laughs> that would be quite the rally. Anyway, just by the fact that we're talking about this, Damien, probably means that stocks are going to go head back down again. So we should shut up now. Almost certainly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Earlier this week, Verve Therapeutics announced that a person in New Zealand had become the first participant in a clinical trial to receive a genome editing treatment meant to permanently lower their blood cholesterol. Yeah, you know, when we typically discuss gene therapy or CRISPR-based treatments on this podcast, it's usually in the context of inherited diseases that affect thousands or even hundreds of people. But Verve is thinking a lot bigger. Uh, if developed successfully, Verve's one-time DNA editing treatment could benefit millions of people with high levels of cholesterol. And by doing so permanently, the treatment could prevent heart attacks and essentially stop people from dying of the most common type of cardiovascular disease. Joining us now to discuss Verve's treatment and the company's plans for it is Sake Kathy Rayson. Sake is a cardiologist by training and Verve's founder and CEO. Sake, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, Damien and Adam. So Sake, we touched on this a bit in the intro, but in your own words, like help us understand the problem that Verve is trying to solve. We're trying to solve heart attack, uh, which is the leading cause of death in the world. Uh, heart attack results from LDL cholesterol clogging the heart arteries and leading to death of heart tissue. Now, the solution to heart attack has actually been revealed by both human genetics and human pharmacology. What we've learned is that if one's LDL cholesterol is low, lifelong, it's really hard to develop a heart attack. And that lesson largely comes from human mutations that confer resistance to heart attack. Now, these mutations turn off a cholesterol-raising gene naturally and lead to lifelong low levels of LDL cholesterols. People who carry these resistance mutations have lifelong low LDL cholesterol and rarely develop a heart attack. At Verve, you know, what we're developing are once-and-done gene-editing medicines that mimic these natural resistance mutations. So think a one-time intravenous infusion, lifelong LDL lowering. So the most advanced therapy, the one we were talking about earlier in the uh, early clinical trial, is called Verve 101. 
Can you tell us how that therapy was designed and, and what its genetic target is? Sure, Damien. Um, Verve 101 is given as a one-time intravenous infusion over about 60 minutes. The medicine is designed to make a single spelling change in liver DNA to turn off a cholesterol-raising gene called PCSK9. Turning off the PCSK9 gene can dramatically lower blood LDL cholesterol. And we know that permanently turning off the PCSK9 gene is well-tolerated because there are humans walking around who completely have this gene turned off, uh, so-called human knockouts. And these individuals have lifelong, very low LDL cholesterol levels, like 20 milligram per deciliter, and are healthy. So treating the, the first patient uh, is a milestone, and, and it comes after a few years of animal testing. What have you been able to show in those animal studies? Yeah, Adam, we've started uh, Verve in 2018. Um, and, um, and over the last four years, we've developed Verve 101. The medicine includes three components, an mRNA for the base editor, a guide RNA, that tells the editor where to go in the genome to make that single spelling change that I referred to. And then both of these nucleic acids are packaged in a lipid nanoparticle, a little fat bubble. Now, we chose a specific type of genetic technology called base editing, a so-called kind of CRISPR 2.0 approach, after comparing base editor with the standard CRISPR-Cas9 in cells, mice, and monkeys. As you know, the standard Cas9 cuts DNA, uh, like molecular scissors, to create double-strand DNA breaks and can turn off a gene that way. Now, base editing doesn't cut DNA, but rather makes a chemical conversion of one base to another, like a pencil and eraser. And the absence of double-strand breaks with base editing is a safety advantage, in our view. So... We've extensively tested this drug product, Verve 101, in non-human primates. In non-human primates, after a single intravenous infusion of Verve 101, we find that the drug is well-tolerated and that after about two weeks, the LDL cholesterol comes down by about 70%, and two years later, the LDL cholesterol is still down 70%. Now, we've also done a series of studies to evaluate whether the editor is leading to so-called off-target editing. Is it making any spelling changes in any other spots in the genome other than the intended on-target edit in the PCSK9 gene? Now, in these studies, we find no evidence of off-target editing in primary human hepatocytes, the target tissue. So there is some skepticism out there, as, as I'm sure is no surprise, but it's not so much to do with the underlying science of what you guys are up to, but rather a question as to whether people would undergo a permanent genome editing to lower their cholesterol when there are other you know, reversible treatment options already out there that target PCSK9, including uh, a relatively recently approved drug from Novartis that is dosed just twice per year. How do you respond when you encounter those folks online and in in real life? Yeah, so Damien, I mean, despite all of the available therapies to lower cholesterol, the majority of heart attack patients do not have their LDL cholesterol controlled. So, for example, there was a recent analysis of about 600,000 patients, all of whom have suffered atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. 
they've had a heart attack, they've had bypass surgery, they've had a stent. The number one treatment for each of these people is to lower the LDL cholesterol as low as possible for as long as possible. And it turns out in this analysis, about 50% of the 600,000 people were not on any LDL-lowering medication at all. That lack of LDL cholesterol control leads to a second heart attack, a bypass surgery, a stent, or even death. This is the unmet need. So why is it that despite all that's available, pills, monoclonal antibodies, antisense oligonucleotides soon, siRNA now, that half the patients are not, are not on any LDL-lowering medication after a heart attack. Our thesis is that it's the chronic care model for chronic disease. The way we treat chronic disease, expecting patients to take daily pills or intermittent injections over decades, that model is broken. Because that model requires rigorous adherence over decades. It requires regular healthcare access over decades and extensive healthcare infrastructure. All of these are really in short supply. And as I said, we think that model is broken. And we think the solution is a safe and effective one-time treatment that leads to permanent lowering of LDL cholesterol. So imagine at the time of a first heart attack, the cardiologist treats that patient with a one-time interventional permanent procedure to clear the clogged heart artery, that's a stent, and also at the same time delivers a second one-time procedure, a 60-minute IV infusion of Verve 101, to safely lower LDL cholesterol lifelong. This is the future we're working towards. Say, so what's your thoughts about the, the, the need to show durability uh, you know, of a treatment like the one you're developing, you know, that's kind of the durability of any sort of gene therapy or genome editing treatment has been an issue. Um, you know, how long do you have to show the effect and, and sort of what outcome would a regulator want to see? Do, do you feel like just sort of extended cholesterol lowering is enough to get your treatment approved or, or are you going to have to show some sort of outcome? That's a great question, um, Adam. Um, our current expectation is that the registration endpoint for VERV 101 is LDL lowering. To date, for every treatment modality that's come along that lowers LDL, and particularly by the PCSK9 mechanism, um, LDL has been the approval endpoint. Um, now, you ask about durability, and yes, we expect to show durability. So by the time we get to a BLA, uh, we'll have durability data probably on average four years, or maybe five, even up to five years for some patients. Um, and, and so uh, the preclinical data to date strongly suggests that gene editing is going to be very different than viral vector gene therapy in terms of durability. And the reason um, uh, this kind of gene editing is different from gene therapy is that we're making an edit to the endogenous DNA. And it looks like the cells that are responsible for liver regeneration, so the rege liver does regenerate, are actually edited when we first do the editing. And when they divide to give rise to new liver cells, they're carrying forward the edit. And therefore, it's durable. 
In addition, unlike viral vector gene therapy, we don't have issues around an inflammatory reaction to the exogenous virus, or um, we don't have a, a requirement of ongoing protein expression that's needed for, for therapeutic benefit. So cardiologists as a group have a well-earned and I think warmly referred to reputation for being pretty opinionated and very confident in those opinions and unafraid of sharing them. So I was curious, what kind of feedback, positive, negative, are you getting from all those chatty cardiologist friends of yours? Um, we do tend to be opinionated. Uh, and, one, <laughs> and, and one person's opinion um, that has carried a lot of weight over the last few decades um, is um, Dr. Eugene Braunwald um, at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And as you know, he's a leading figure in world cardiology and the editor of um, the definitive textbook uh, for the field called Braunwald's Heart Disease. Um, he had two comments, actually, um, a couple of days ago after the Verve 101 first patient dosing was announced. One uh, is the lower the LDL, the better. Uh, and you can't have too low an LDL. Uh, the problem is only how you get it down. The second comment was really on gene editing. And he said, to quote, so gene editing is the big stick because it's a one and done. It's a very big deal because atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of death in the industrialized world, and LDL is the primary reason. So I think his comments really reflect the unmet need and the potential solution here. Well, like this work is really fascinating, and uh, you know we look forward to having you back on the podcast when you've got uh, results read- reading out from from the study. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, we expect um, to have data, clinical data, interim clinical data on this phase one study in 2023. All hot girls have IBS, just so you know. That's abbreviated JSYK, and that's a tweet from at Piece of Crust posted on May 16th, 2019. I mention it because it is one of the earliest examples of an in-joke among the extremely online that grew into an unintentional movement for people living with chronic conditions. It helped clear the way for conversations about health, seeking out care, and advocating for oneself in the doctor's office. Stats Isabella Cueto got extremely online to document the hot girls have IBS phenomenon. She's going to explain it to a grandpa like me. And she joins us here to talk about it. Issa, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me and especially to talk about this. (laughs) Well, so maybe let's start with the origins. I assume people know that IBS is short for irritable bowel syndrome, but they might be curious as to just how it became a sort of tongue-in-cheek membership card for people on social media. Can you explain? Well, I I try to explain, but like a lot of things on the internet, it's extremely hard to figure out how or why something takes off and why it happens at a certain point in time, um, since much of the internet is just memes within memes, just Russian dolls of memes. Um, so I suspect, this is my theory, that it's sort of like a combination of people getting really into like WebMD and finding out health information online, and then the rise of Megan the Stallion, who I thought... I thought my story was the first in stat to mention Megan the Stallion, but Damien, you actually had her in one of your stories, so <laughs> no I'm idea. jealous. That's a side note. <laughs> 
And then we have have the pandemic, you know, mental health conversations happening online. We have like tummy trouble memes coming in. And then at some point we sort of wind up in this space of hot girls have IBS. Um, And that's sort of the trajectory that I've been able to trace by being online. So like a lot of things uh, during the forced indoors period of the pandemic, uh, the phenomenon quickly made its way to TikTok. Hot girls have IBS. I used to hate telling anyone I had IBS. Now I make IBS look cute AF. We all know that hot girls have IBS, right? But what the hotter girls know is that IBS is technically a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning your doctor checked to make uh, sure Which you is don't where it really seemed to take off. How did this movement evolve from there? Yeah, so TikTok is such an interesting creature, and it's similar to Twitter, but it, it especially, in, in a very particular way, is all about replication and like putting your spin on sort of a predetermined format and making it your own. So when enough people start talking about a certain thing, it really takes off. And so you look at hashtag gut talk, which is like TikToks about gut health, that has 542 million views on those videos. IBS Talk has 195 million views. And so it's all kinds of people like across the spectrum talking about everything from just like how to stop bloating after they eat food to dealing with like having an ostomy bag after having really invasive surgery for Crohn's disease. And so I wanted to capture that in this story. And there's an IRL uh, in real life uh, element to the story as well. Issa, your your story actually leads with a a billboard in L.A. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's uh, I saw that billboard IRL uh, driving in L.A. And it's it was just this hot pink billboard that said hot girls have IBS. And that was actually after doing some snooping around, I found it was put up by um, a snack bar company that makes like tummy friendly um, cookies and stuff. And it was just sort of um, really striking to see that in real life after seeing this conversation spiraling online. And it made me curious about whether actual doctors are hearing about this in the office as well. Well, to that point, you spoke to gastroenterologists who treat bowel conditions. What did they make of of this broader phenomenon? Yeah, I spoke to a few and they said that they appreciate that that this is helping to destigmatize and increase visibility for bowel diseases and also helping to like uh, make a distinction draw a distinction between IBS and IBD uh, which is inflammatory bowel disease and is much more severe and serious and requires like you know actual medical care versus someone who just has a bit of bloating after eating certain foods you know um And it's interesting, too, because there seems to be this surge of gut-related health issues in recent decades, and nobody knows exactly why. And there's a lot of theories, whether it's, you know, uh, childhood use of antibiotics that damage the microbiome in the gut, or preservatives and hormones in the food supply, or whether it's just that people are talking about it more. There's, you know, half a billion views of these TikToks, and so people are becoming more aware of their stomach troubles. Um, But overall, they said it's a good thing just to be talking about this and making it not so taboo. Well, towards that point, you said, like, what what do people in the IBD patient community make of this whole hot girls have IBS phenomenon? Well, I obviously, you know, it's hard to capture the sentiment of a whole, like, movement, if you will. But 
IBD is really serious and there's people who don't appreciate being lumped together under IBS or it being like, oh, I have a tummy ache today. Like, it's really not that. For them, it's a debilitating chronic condition. It has a whole slew of other symptoms and side effects that aren't just stomach, uh, you know, stomach troubles or trouble going to the bathroom. And so it's important to make sure that people can know the difference between those things. One thing I thought was striking is like, you know, as you mentioned, it kind of comes to a head with this massive billboard in Los Angeles, which is underwritten by a company that is selling a product. But basically leading up to that, this has all been organic. Like we've seen, I think we've all seen commercials that are like, ask your doctor about whatever. And they're underwritten by pharmaceutical companies where they may not disclose in that ad the drug that they're trying to get you to eventually receive. But that is the financial incentive they're pursuing. Whereas, as you said, this does seem to have just grown out of people posting with like no financial incentive. I guess some TikTokers are monetized, but just in general, it's it's like a naturalistic movement. Yeah, it's interesting because it's hard to not think of like the Instagram influencers or like even celebrities who sell like flat tummy teas or like little gummy bear vitamins like for your stomach. And those are more like aesthetic issues of like not wanting your stomach to bloat. But that sort of runs as an undercurrent in all of this as well. Like there's a lot of people who post about like drink drink certain teas or, um, you know, this is how to get your gut health in check. And there are products and sponsorships involved. But it does seem to be, like you say, a lot of just like natural conversation and people finding community online through this. So you said I have an old person question. Yeah. Do non-hot girls also have IBS? Hot girls is anyone, Adam. Oh, so okay. So you can identify as a hot girl, and I actually think <laughs> you should. Um, I think it's to your benefit. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's sort of cheeky, and um, obviously it's not just for girls and um I think everyone has something hot to them, but it's not just for people who think they're hot. You know, it's, 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 it's everyone. Issa, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Abinado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like, and whether you think biotech stocks are going up or down. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.